service. Our scripture passage this morning is from, as I mentioned earlier, from the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus interacting primarily with his disciples. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, man, this, this, is, this is such a relevant topic. A lot of us are wrestling mightily with anxiety. And so we just ask for a supernatural work of God this morning, that your Holy Spirit would come. And you know our various estates. And I just pray that you would use this passage um, to heal us where we need to be healed, to restore our joy. We love you so much, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to be fairly candid with you this morning. I mean, every week at City Church, I'm not just like preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself. I mean, I, I need to hear these passages just as much as you do, but I really need to hear this passage this morning. For much of my life, I have wrestled with a sort of smoldering internal anxiety, something that's become a significant part of my journey as a Christian, something that I am always willing to share more about if you face similar challenges. Accordingly, this passage used to make me anxious. I would get anxious about being anxious because Jesus says not to be anxious. And then, no joke, I would get anxious about being anxious about being anxious. And I would just go right on down this rabbit hole. I know some of you can relate to that. In fact, you're already wrestling with anxiety, and now you're about to feel guilty about it. You know, hooray. Or perhaps you're anxious this morning because you've heard reductionistic discussions about anxiety in church settings that insinuate you simply have less faith than other people. 
But at the same time, anxiety is such an important topic to address right now. We live in anxious times, an anxious age, whatever you want to call it, especially here in the West. Self-reported anxiety has never been higher, especially, this is heartbreaking, among teenagers. A few weeks ago, I was talking to the president of a college in Virginia, and I have like no small talk for this, by the way. It's like, how's the college going? You know, it's like, hey. Um, and so I was like, yeah, how, how, is, how is your college going? And the first thing he told me, the first thing out of his mouth was students are dealing with so much anxiety. On Wednesday, the headline in one of the daily newspapers I read were this buffet of anxiety catalysts. Stock slump in worst session of the year. Putin suspends nuclear pact. Global tensions echo Cold War, and then defaults escalate for office landlords. And that was, that was Wednesday. I have some really good news. What we have here from Jesus in verses 25 through 34, it's not a scold. It's not a guilt trip. It's ultimately an invitation. It is a beautiful and restful invitation for anxious people. The invitation does do some necessary conviction, but it's conviction that's meant to build up and heal and ultimately contribute to our flourishing. Remember that Jesus' goal in the Sermon on the Mount isn't so much to help us get in line morally, but to renovate our hearts and help us flourish as his disciples. Two reflections this morning in search of this beautiful rest. Number one, we're going to talk about the reason for our anxiety, and then number two, the secret to living non-anxiously. The reason, according to Jesus, for our anxiety, and then number two, the secret to living non-anxiously. Let's start with that first reflection, the reason for our anxiety. Chipper, you just alluded to the danger of reductionism when having discussions about anxiety, and now here you are making this blanket statement about the reason for our anxiety. Two responses to that, because I think that's an important objection. Response number one, we should make a distinction between what we might call clinical anxiety and then the kind of anxiety that Jesus is talking about in this passage. They're often related, but they are different, and we'll come back to that later. Response number two, Jesus himself speaks very plainly about the reason for the anxiety he's talking about in Matthew chapter 6. Look again at Jesus' primary exhortation, which is found at the beginning of the passage in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. But you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That poor word, therefore, is so often neglected, a casualty of some of the topical teaching about anxiety that doesn't pay as much attention to context. But it's a vitally important, therefore, 
because it tells us that there's a premise behind Jesus' exhortation. What's the premise? It's the theme of the three contrast cadences we talked about last week in verses 19 through 24. Remember what we talked about. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not earth. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And we saw that laying up treasures in heaven involves a generous eye, basically a generous disposition, and it involves devoting ourselves to God, not money, because you cannot serve two masters. Therefore, do you see this? In light of this, therefore, assuming that you are laying up treasure in the kingdom of heaven, and assuming that God is your master, don't be anxious about your life. Your heavenly treasure is secure, it's protected from worldly decay, and God is a preeminently trustworthy master. So congratulations, disciples. You get to not be anxious. You are part of a blessed spiritual ecosystem in which you are now free to leave your anxiety prison. Which brings us back to the reason for the anxiety that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6. If our functional master is something or someone other than God, will lay up treasures on earth in accordance with that mastery, treasures that are perpetually threatened, metaphorically speaking, by moth damage and by rust damage and by thievery. And then we'll spend all of our waking moments, and honestly, even our sleeping moments, anxiously trying to protect our treasure from all of this decay, even though deep down, we know we're fighting a losing battle. If our treasure is academic success, tests, and papers, and defenses will consume us with fear and dread. And even minor disappointments or, or critical feedback, no matter how constructive, will capsize our emotional well-being. If our treasure is vocational success, important decisions will constantly paralyze us, and we will be so concerned that our colleagues are outperforming us, and job security will regularly be front of mind. And if our treasure is parenting well-rounded, well-adjusted children, we will overwhelm them with activities, we will panic, when their academic performance is substandard, and we will regularly compare them with the kids down the street. And you know we will wrestle with all of these things as we reckon with the inescapable reality that even our strongest academic performances will land us jobs that will eventually end with either death or I don't know, maybe 10 years or so of golf at the top of the world community just south of us, and then death. And even the most well-adjusted children will still be imperfect, and they won't visit you as often as they should when they're adults. And oh, by the way, all it takes is one drunk driver 
or a cancer diagnosis or an unhinged global dictator to turn all of this upside down in approximately one second. And some of you have experienced exactly these sorts of things. A minute ago, I used the phrase functional master. And I use it very intentionally because it's quite possible, if not common, to explicitly profess belief in God, even as your lifestyle indicates that your actual God is something else. In fact, and this is uncomfortable to talk about, but anxiety is a, it's effectively a kind of truth serum. One of the most powerful indicators that your real master is different than God is anxiety. Want to know what you really believe in? Follow your anxiety. And perhaps this sheds some helpful light on what in the world is happening when we hear of spiritual leaders bullying their congregants or staff or, or living abusively. Sure, their stated master is God, but their real master is power or maybe their reputation, maybe money, and so they anxiously guard those things through bullying and manipulation, and so forth. I wonder, are you anxious about your life? Are you anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will put on? As you chew on that question, here are three pastoral reflections for those of you who are indeed anxious. Number one, I am so sorry, and my heart breaks for you. Anxiety is miserable, and I know that from personal experience. Number two, a spiritual heart exam is in order. An examination that ideally involves a community of believers who can see some things that you might not see and can also encourage you and remind you of God's promises. Very often, other people can see anxiety catalysts that you cannot see. And you know what they can also do? They can speak God's truth to you. They can speak God's promises to you. Number three, as you examine your heart, as you do this heart examination, keep in mind that anxiety is different than zeal or simply just caring a lot about something. Anxiety about your life, as Jesus calls it here, is the emotional and spiritual instability you experience when you are being mastered by someone or something other than God. Godly zeal and care, such as to love your children sacrificially or, or to do excellent work that benefits the common good and provides for your family, that is the overflow of a heart affected by the sacrificial generosity of God. How can we know the difference? One, I believe, under-discussed way to discern the difference is actually the focus on gratitude and celebration. Anxious people tend to grumble and complain, sometimes publicly, sometimes internally, keeping in mind that some of the grumbling is subtle and very often hard to detect. On the other hand, spiritually zealous people find opportunities to celebrate and to practice gratitude 
even when dealing with difficult external circumstances. Earlier I mentioned clinical anxiety, distinguishing it from the anxiety about life that Jesus is talking about here with his disciples. Everyone faces anxiety and angst in this Matthew chapter 6 sense. Some of us more severely than others. Often, when we don't believe we have any issues with anxiety, it's actually because we haven't yet been challenged with uncertainty or loss concerning something that's actually really important to us. So all of us face this kind of life anxiety and angst to some degree. But some of us also deal with what we might call, for lack of a better phrase, clinical anxiety, often characterized by unwanted, uncontrollable physiological responses, unwanted thoughts, etc. Sometimes we're predisposed to clinical anxiety for hereditary reasons. You might know even really young kids whose stomachs get tight in certain moments, and they're, they're, they're not fixated on anything necessarily. It's just happening to them. Sometimes clinical anxiety is related to trauma. Sometimes clinical anxiety is related to other stressors like inadequate sleep, an unhealthy work environment. I'm sure you can think of other reasons. And sometimes clinical anxiety is catalyzed by factors that are difficult, if not impossible, to fully discern. And I feel like it's really important to say that, that those of us who are experiencing clinical anxiety might very well benefit from counseling, from various kinds of exercises, sometimes from medication. And accordingly, I am so grateful. We have, I know, at least a few mental health professionals in our congregation. I praise God for you. You are doing really important work, and we love you. If you do experience clinical anxiety, counseling and, and maybe medication in some circumstances and other resources might be really important and valuable for you, but also keep in mind that some of your anxiety may well be catalyzed by the spiritual considerations that Jesus is talking about here. Counseling and medications can be so wonderful, but church, they cannot repair a heart that's being mastered by something other than God. And as such an important consideration in a cultural moment in which spiritual considerations are increasingly discounted or, or cast aside entirely. But earlier I told you that I used to get very anxious about this passage. But now this is actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible, seriously. A very significant turn of events that has to do with grasping our second reflection, which deals with the secret to living non-anxiously. We dipped our toes in these waters a bit already. You might have caught some of this, but now we're going with the full cannonball here. So first reflection, the reason for our anxiety, and now secondly, the secret to living non-anxiously. If you want to be a non-anxious person, Again, in this Matthew chapter 6 sense, talking about the anxiety of life, here are two ways to totally face plant. Number one, anxiously pursue non-anxious living. You know, just like, okay, so Jesus says not to be anxious, so starting tomorrow, no more anxiety. Don't, I do not want to disappoint the Messiah, so I am simply going to be aware of my anxiety now. When I detect the anxiety, I'm going I'm to cut it off at the pass. 
Second way, potentially, to face plant. This is a, a trickier one, since I would say maybe there's a kernel of truth to it that we'll try to swing back to later. Second way to face plant, adopt an anxiety prosperity theology. You know, if I can just have a little bit more faith, then my anxiety will melt away. You know, I'm struggling with anxiety because I'm just not believing as much as other people in my spiritual community. Thankfully, there's a better way. Something that Jesus, he addresses actually all the way down in verse 33. I wonder if you caught it when we were reading this passage. So, so don't be anxious, and instead, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. All of these concerns we were just talking about. Kingdom of God is essentially identical to the kingdom of heaven language that Jesus has already used in the Sermon on the Mount. And remember that we've been using Patrick Schreiner's very helpful definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is basically a fancy way of referring to the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. So instead of being anxious about your life, especially in the context of this passage, daily necessities like food and clothing and water, focus on something else entirely. Focus on cultivating your kingdom heart, a heart characterized by love for God, love for God's people, and ultimately love for your heavenly inheritance with God and the new heaven and the new earth. It's been a minute since we've talked about Oprah here at City Church. A long minute. So here's a little something for you know those of you that might be in our book club or maybe you watched her show in the 90s, whatever the case may be. This is kind of a, a millennial Gen X and above. We do a lot for Gen Z, so I'm trying to be balanced here. When Oprah or, or other self-help gurus talk about habit formation, they actually champion a principle similar to what Jesus is getting at here. If you want to rid yourself of a bad habit, the secret is to focus on what you're replacing that bad habit with. You've, you've seen the books, you've read the articles, so on and so forth. You can't just focus on not doing the bad thing. You have to redirect toward a better thing, otherwise you'll keep centering the very thing you're trying to move on from. So instead of focusing on not using social media every seven minutes, which is like the national average or something is horrible, focus on learning to play the piano. <laughs> I, I, I know that sounds a touch idealistic, but these are the examples that the gurus use. You know, become an amateur florist or whatever you need to do. Redirect. You get the point. Instead of being anxious, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, basically a, a way of living that's consistent with having a kingdom heart. And notice that between verse 25 and verse 33, Jesus shows us several times that seeking the kingdom includes a whole lot of time considering, or we might say, beholding God the Father. I'm going to seek the kingdom. 
You want to fall in love with the king. You're going to need to consider him. You're going to need to, going to behold him in his glory, his nature, and his character. And so Jesus helps his disciples do exactly that between verse 25 and verse 33. Consider the father who feeds the birds, even though they don't have jobs in agriculture. Verse 26. And then Jesus says, consider the father who, who clothes the grass of the field, even though lilies don't have jobs in the textile industry. Verses 28 through 30. And by the way, the lilies are actually more spectacular in Jesus' eyes than King Solomon ever was at the height of his opulent glory. Human beings who are image bearers of God himself are infinitely more valuable than birds and flowers. So how much more will God provide for his people? And remember, Jesus goes on to say that the Father knows exactly what your needs are. Verse 32. Which is why we pray to the Father less to inform him of what we need and more to commune with him. When we behold God, church, in this kind of way, we're seeking the kingdom and we're cultivating our hearts. And very importantly, we're redirecting our attention away from ourselves. Kingdom seeking, being that it involves cultivating a heart for God and a heart for His people, inherently entails self-forgetfulness. And self-forgetfulness is like backing up a dump truck full of sand onto an anxiety fire. It, it suffocates its power. What does this kind of beholding look like in your life right now? How do you worshipfully consider God's attributes and His, His nature, His concern for everything that He's made? Does it look like anything at all? Does this rhythm exist in the rhythms of your everyday lives? We have here from Jesus, I am telling you, a beautiful invitation to consider the character and the work of our Heavenly Father. Not just on Sunday mornings, but on Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and every single day. How do you pause? How do you reflect? How do you help other people do the same? Because you might be you know, a single parent or something and, look, and looking at me like, I don't, I don't have time to do this. And that's where the body of Christ comes in and serves you so you do have time to do this. And you'll see that this requires some, some margin. We cannot till the fields of our lives to the edges of the lot lines and expect to behold. And expect to consider God's beauty and His goodness and everything else that we have to consider that's unpacked for us in God's Word. We can't fill every silent space with a glance at our phones, which is compounding, by the way, our anxiety by such an astronomical degree that it's starting to make me a little bit upset. I can't stand the harm this kind of thing is causing, especially when it comes to our anxiety. There are so many different kinds of ways to behold. You know, Scripture, meditation, and prayer are probably the, the anchors. But there's a lot of beholding to do in nature as well. Even during our early morning walk, without your phone, 
Seriously, consider how much your life might change if you started waking up 20 minutes earlier and simply went for a walk without your phone and talked with God or whatever you want to do. Consider the lilies. Scripture memory, I would say, is vitally important as well, something that really should be an automatic part of discipleship, and yet I don't necessarily think that's the case all of the time. But Scripture memory, man, if you want to behold God, no better way to do that than to have His Word mulling about in your brain. And whatever you behold, whatever you behold, behold the thing that Lent points us to. By the way, shout out to Lent, right? I mean, we kicked Lent off with our Ash Wednesday prayer gathering this past Wednesday in the, in the sanctuary. Do you see how, among many other things, an intentional season of fasting and prayer for the sake of hungering after God might help us not be anxious? Do you see the connection? And whatever you behold, behold the thing that Lent points us to, namely the cross. Behold the magnitude of the Father's love that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you are anxious about your life, your daily provision, please consider that the Father gave his Son in order to provide eternal life, eternal life, for those who put their hope in the true king and seek his kingdom. Anxious people, God is near to you, and he loves you, and he wants to minister to you. Case in point, Jesus' intentional ministry to a bunch of, my goodness, Really anxious disciples, read the Gospels, holy smokes. And I want to end by, by letting you in on something, hopefully for the sake of your own encouragement. I never do this, so you know how unusual this is. So I, want to, I want you to consider how the Lord actually worked in my own life just this morning, for the sake, I hope, of your joy in Christ. My wife and I, we did not sleep super great last night. Uh, partly because our son was up and he was having some difficulties, ironically, possibly with anxiety. And so, to be completely forthcoming with you, as I laid in bed last night, I was feeling a bit anxious. You could even say that I was anxious about giving an anxiety sermon, which is not great. And then when I got to my office, Early this morning, I prayerfully asked the Lord, in light of all of this, for a bit of an assist, you know, a divine fist bump of sorts. And by the way, that's not an uncommon thing for pastors to do on Sunday mornings. We're always really prayerful early on Sunday morning. And so I asked them for this kind of divine fist bump, this, this pick-me-up, and then I kid you not, and you know, I do not tell these stories, but I, I kid you not, when I asked for this, I noticed that I was literally staring at a lily. Someone had recently written a thank you note to City Church for letting them use our building to host one of their events. And that card was still sitting on my desk. And on the front of the card is a painting by Joseph Stella 
called French lilies, and I took the time to just bring it. I was staring at it from about this distance. Our Heavenly Father, church, is not a washed-up football coach yelling at his team to try harder. You know, and, let, and if you don't, then you won't go wider. That's not the character of God. He's a shepherd who makes his sheep lie down in green pastures. He leads his sheep beside still waters and restores their souls and leads them in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's rather uncomfortable to hear Jesus refer to his disciples as people of little faith, isn't it? We feel the conviction. We feel the honesty in that statement. Good news. Jesus isn't calling here for an increase your faith competition. And then, you know, maybe he'll release your anxiety. He's actually inviting his disciples to not only walk with him, which they were already doing, but to really trust in him as their master and to behold him. He's calling for costly yet vibrant Christianity. Not the thin cultural stuff, which is easy but won't do anything for this kind of anxiety, let me tell you. He's calling for costly yet vibrant Christianity for the sake of your flourishing in this world as we long with expectant joy for the king's place, the new heaven, the new earth, where we will sing together, it is well with my soul. And there won't be any suffering, there won't be any more sin, and our anxiety will be totally wiped out. Amen.